Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how's it hanging? Man, it is so wild. I, I'm in the midst of, of a dream come true, moving to Boulder City. I love it more and more every single minute. It's not just a, a cool town, a fun town, the right town for me. I, I feel like... Uh, my old New Guinea friends who would say, we move at the heart of the world. You know, that sense of just being where you really need to be and the magic unfolds. And there is strangeness and magic unfolding all the time. And in the meantime, yeah. I'm in a I'm in the El Dorado Motel on Nevada Way. I photographed their mm-hmm. big neon sign many times. Uh, it is a Route 66 era uh, establishment, and the reality of staying there is a good uh, tonic to romance about uh, the nostalgia for Route 66 because uh, many of the furnishings, including everything in the kitchenette and the bathroom, have not been upgraded since then. Uh, and there is a cast of characters moving in and out that... Uh, my God, it makes me, you know, it makes me think I'm going to have to get, you know, writing fiction again because there's just so much weird stuff happening. So I'm. Did you see the film The Florida Project? No, I did not. The Florida Project is directed by the same guy who did Tangerine. I believe it's got Willem Dafoe as the proprietor of a big purple uh, live-in motel oh, somewhere in yes. kind of rundown Florida. And it's got this great cast of non-actors, uh, real hotel people. Um, and it's mostly about this little girl and her relationship with her extremely troubled millennial mother who kind of, they live out of this hotel room. It's a great slice of life, uh, realistic documentary style uh, drama that's definitely worth your time oh it, i've got to get into like it you might be in the you might be in the the you know the colorado version of the of the florida project right now yeah yeah well the nevada version i mean uh, nevada version. yeah Sorry, you know yeah. i mean we're talking like the signage is just simply outstanding everywhere you turn and the characters everything is going on in this town we've we've got a really amazing mix of of people from there's a very big biker contingent huge huge harley sort of scene uh vintage cars there we've got crackheads and billionaires we've got really artsy hippie antique store people we've got trumpers it's it's just on for <coughs> young and old it's more more blending of people in a and i think a very very uh well civil sort of way it's it mm-hmm. it it reaffirms my my faith and everything and then there's the lake uh the river the colorado river man and of course there are there are ufos i mean You'd have to be an idiot not to believe in UFOs here anyway, okay. you know? I, I, I am really glad you said that. I want to get to, I want to address our challenges real quick, but that UFO, hold that UFO thought, because my week in dissidence has something to do with that. Okay. So real quick, Chris has informed me that several listeners are curious as to a uh, word update so for those of you who have been keeping track of this every episode, Chris will give me five strange words, of which I am 
assigned to pick two. The idea being that I will integrate them into uh, our conversation seamlessly so that you will never know which ones I picked. Or, you know, if you're kind of sharp and listening for it, you might you might hear it. You might have some guesses. But our listeners brought up a good point, which is that we never let people know what those words actually are. So from now on, what I'm going to do is I'm going to post the following week uh, at the end of the episode description what the two words were that I ended up choosing. So you'll you'll be able to tell from that. Um, and let's see, there were some other ideas too, maybe about you uh, giving me a score, something like that. I'm totally fine with that. Uh, I, I think that's that's okay. But uh, but yeah, we'll we'll essentially we'll, we'll be letting you know which what the words were. Yeah, I think the the, the bottom line here is that people uh, are really listening and engaging with this and want us to put a little bit more structure and pressure on your performance, which I think is a great idea because you have been doing really well. Uh, and it shows that some of these ideas, the, the underlying tips and techniques that we're trying to put forward are, are, are really starting to register with people. So, you know, we, we like structure. Structure's a good thing. People who fight against structure and rules and grammar, they, they're missing a deep point about life. Uh, they're, the idea is not to avoid those things. It's to shape them and, and make them more interesting and make them more congruent with psychological and magical realities. And I think we can do that. Uh, I, I, in, in my own mind, what I'm, I'm going to uh, focus on is a little bit more sense of scoring and grading. And uh, mm -hmm. the first mm -hmm. thought that popped into my mind, and I have no explanation for it, um, I've been th just wanting to see what you would look like in a Swiss Alpine hat with a feather. Mm -hmm. And I thought mm -hmm. it would be interesting to sort of craft that image. And the better you do, the bigger your feather gets, such that over six like months, you would be walking around with, figuratively speaking, walking around with an enormous feather. Uh, because, you know, the feather in your cap, so to speak, because you've done better and better at these things. Uh, so I think it's good. I like the way that relates to I will I like the way that relates to both writing and a, a sort of mild phallic symbol as well. Yeah. So I, I can appreciate both angles on that. Yeah. And a kind of a, a fun sort of uh, you know, a silliness in the hat, but also a, a nobility too. You know, silly nobility is kind of a, a nice idea, I think. So I like it. Yeah. I like it. So you have your five words, my... and you have two to choose. I do. You've two, you've chosen two. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. So for my challenge today, what do you got for me? My favorite part of the week. Okay. Well, this is uh, we're going to plunge right into uh, one of my memory uh, workshop concepts. Uh, my textbook on creative writing in the imagination is only a month away from worldwide English publication. Very exciting. Very exciting. It's, it's going to be big. Um, but one of it the will. key things that, that emerged within the writing of that uh, about enhancing imagination in a, in a kind of physical strength, mobility, balance sense, I draw a lot on analogies with dance and athletics generally, uh, was a very, very strong focus on memory. And I think I've mentioned on the show that that became 
all the more important to me because uh, in my researches I found that the entire notion of memory science and its role in cognitive studies overall is incredibly muddled. There's no consensus. We really don't know anything coherently more than we did 2,000 years ago. Every piece of research that's revealed something important has then called into question something else. So it's a self-canceling proposition. We've got people who have had railroad spikes drilled through their cerebral cortex and can remember fine. We have terrible performance generally uh, in the 18 to 25 year old brackets. This is where it really got my interest that, uh, and I say to my students around the world, you know, we have to get younger. We have to get younger. And that really pisses off someone who's 19 years old, you know. Um, but Nicholas Carr and Douglas Rushkoff have talked about the influence of technology and gadgetry and sort of the causal factors, the scrambling of brains and attention. Uh, and I think that's important. All of these things are important. Uh, working, you know, in an exercise sense is important with your, with your mind, your memory. Uh, I support the use of certain uh, herbal, uh, you know, supplements. I, I don't see anything wrong with those if people can afford them. But I think we need to have another idea of what memory is because we start off using that word, uh, which comes from the Greeks, one of the muses. It, it applies to too many different things. Uh, it's just mm -hmm. too, that, that's one of the problems. If you have you know, the, the, the smell of a fresh cut lemon mixed in with your second grade teacher, an annoying advertising right. jingle, or, you know, 1066, the day of the battle, you know, the year of the Battle of Hastings, whoever, you know, whatever that was about. It's too, too muddled, too confusing. So I want to break that mm -hmm. down. And part of it is, is trying to get people to think of memories not as static things. This ties into a bigger uh, approach that David and I put forward of really seeing dynamic process and verbs, seeing the world in terms of verbs and relationships, not nouns. And this is an idea that has, you know, shared by many, many of our intellectual, philosophical, and magical heroes. So we're not saying in any way that's unique to us, but we're trying to prosecute that in practical terms. So one of my exercises and it's very relevant in the town where I am, Boulder City, because we have some absolutely fabulous antique stores. But I'm sure, David, you've been into a very, very packed, fabulous antique ephemera store. Might have been an old mm -hmm. stables, you know, with many different little alcoves. There might be 50 different vendor collectors represented there, okay? Mm -hmm. You can get mm -hmm. lost Maybe, maybe you have lost Rios already. Maybe she's wandered off to another part, uh, uh -huh. you know, maybe, and you're concerned about breaking things and there are people bumbling around and there's all sorts of things to think about. But I want you to imagine very, very slowly and carefully trying to forensically examine one alcove of objects artifacts in this very large labyrinth-like antique place, okay? I want you to think okay. very, very carefully about that because in your 
response. You're gonna give us. You're gonna give us a travel log. That's really what what I'm asking you for here. A very precise safari of the mind, your mind, and I'm gonna do, then do a little bit of a debrief as to what is significant about your response and how we can build on that in other memory exercises. Okay. Okay, so that I'm giving you a travel log of a visit to one of these antique, uh, uh, sort of the, the beginning of Gremlins style spots, and I'm describing a, a specific alcove yes, in one of these. Yes, so it's probably the uh, represented by a single vendor with a particular collected. Mm-hmm you know, collector interest, you know, maybe there's a theme, maybe there's not, you know, uh, that's entirely up to you. But you're spending time and mental focus in just one little uh, compartment of this very complex jigsaw puzzle of objects and artifacts. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I can do that. Cool. All right, so back to your uh, what you had said about UFOs. I want to gear up my my weakened dissonance, which is a bit of a uh, it's a bit of a reading list because I just want to sort of touch on some things really quickly that I think listeners will be interested in. The first one is uh, has to do with the Joe Rogan podcast. He had an episode recently with uh, Majid Nawaz who was a political Islamist prisoner in Egypt for four years, who then became an anti-terror advocate, meeting with the likes of George W. Bush and Tony Blair, who currently has some interesting thoughts on the creeping authoritarianism and totalitarianism brought on by the COVID pandemic. I think that there has been a lot of attention on the Rogan podcast in the past few months uh, namely with uh, this this thought of uh, spreading misinformation. But I think this particular podcast, which runs about three hours, uh, no matter what side of the fence you find yourself on with this argument, I think you owe it to yourself and to having a place within uh, this conversation to take the three hours to listen to that, because I feel like there are many dissonant ideas there. Another article, which is on the opposite side of the fence, um, was published recently in Slate by a man named Adam Kotzko, who is one of the preeminent translators of the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben's work into English. And Agamben, since 2020, has had a very contradictory and inflammatory uh, opinion about what is going on with the COVID pandemic. Um, Kotzko is particularly focused on Agamben's comparing the pandemic and its lockdown and mandate measures to Nazi Germany, which are very inflammatory remarks for obvious reasons. His assertion that COVID is no worse than the flu and his preoccupation with biopolitics. So briefly, Agamben is, he, his work follows from the work of Michel Foucault. Towards the end of Foucault's career before he died, he was coming really focused on how a state manages and controls bodies in spaces. And Agamben is very focused on 
this kind of control. Uh, it's it's been his focus since uh, since he started. He has a big omnibus that I'm working through. It's a thousand pages. It's kind of his collected works on uh, the Homo Saker, which is the idea of the uh, the sacrificial human, the, the the person who's sort of untouchable in society, the scapegoat, to uh, you know to use a term that people might be familiar with. But this particular Slate article is kind of a takedown of Agamben's application of his life's work onto a real instance of biopolitical control, whether it's the lockdowns or the vaccine mandates. And I thought that it was um, a good a good essay, a good piece, uh, which I disagreed with a lot, caused a lot of dissonance in my own mind. But speaking about the due diligence, you know, I think it's I think it's incumbent upon people like me to to cross the aisle and read these kind of opinion pieces as well, right? Because I think that we can get to a place where we can actually talk about these things in a reasonable manner if we're only willing to, uh, you know, not read things that just confirm our biases 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So those, those are my two uh, reading, listening assignments for the week. But the big dissonance that I had and I think Chris will find this interesting. I was listening to a podcast with my wife while we were driving uh, back from her parents' house this weekend, and it's a it's called Ologies. And the host of this show uh, interviews experts of all kinds, entomologists. Uh, there was a really great episode that I heard once about the burial rituals of crows, um, but this particular one was ufology, right? So the study of UFOs. And she had two very smart, astute uh, studiers of, of the UFO phenomena on there. And they were uh, very careful to couch everything that they said about UFOs in terms of, you know, it's Venus, or it's swamp gas, or it's trash, or it's military exercises, or what have you. And so they said two things that I thought were very, very funny. And this is the kind of dissonance of... Um, research-oriented scientism, starkly put. The first one was this insistence that a lot of the strange things that the, these two women had seen around Area 51 were military experiments. So they explained these orange orbs in the sky that formed back together and created this incredible light show in the air, and they said, you know, it was a military exercise. And another one described a, a, a matrix of sparkling white lights that formed patterns in the sky. Again, military training exercises. What's funny to me about this is the fact that those are military training exercises doesn't change how weird that actually is. You see what I mean? Like, it's, it's not explaining anything away to say that the military has this kind of technology. But the second thing that I thought was really interesting had to do with the fact that they were trying to make it abundantly clear that human beings have a natural tendency to find patterns in things. Now, this is the pareidolia uh, argument that you hear all the time when it comes to any kind of, whether it's cryptozoological or ufological, ufological? or you know angels or ghosts or whatever human beings look for patterns and things 
And that's why we see weird stuff because we're always trying to piece it together. And that to me seems to be the biggest scientific coping mechanism of all time, right? It's not really what you're seeing. Your brain's just forming a pattern and putting things together. So don't trust your eyes because you are a machine that has faulty wiring that just can't quite, you know, can't quite put those puzzle pieces together. I thought you would uh, appreciate that. Well, I do. You know, I, I think that uh, on the on the UFO front, I mean, I think it's it's worth everyone's while to go back to Jung's uh, sort of mythological, uh, psychological uh, inquiry, meditation on the UFO phenomenon, because I, I think it's not easily summarized, but I, I think that what, what you could say about it, if you were trying to give it a fair summary, is his framework is one of breaking down the strict dichotomy between are UFOs real or are they, for instance, entirely uh, figments of the human cultural imagination? I mean, you can imagine people like Jung particularly, but, but Joseph Campbell as well would say, look, there, there's nothing uh, to be dismissed about figments of the human cultural imagination. Let's just, let's just back off dismissing that sort of thing because that's kind of important. Uh, and maybe redefines a notion of, of reality. And so we have you know, a psychological reality versus a material reality. And then there's the question of, well, no, they're, they're, they are real, but they're uh, highly classified experimental top secret U.S. Uh, or some corporate entities experimental craft that that yes you could touch them if you could get onto uh this very uh forbidden terrain of places like area 51. i've been out there several times and i i think it's very clear that that it is an enormous showcase for the world because obviously nations around the world uh, have satellite access and there what i saw was was uh on any given day there are three decks uh, of incredible uh, maneuvering, uh, dogfighting, stunt flying, all sorts of things. There are multiple uh, scales of drones uh, in, in action. I saw uh, a drone that probably, in reality, I think it probably would, would have been the size of a, of a, a glider but I, th I think it could fit in my motel room, for instance, flying at enormous speed, uh, terrain following, um, subsonic, but it just really at, at, a, at a disturbing rate of speed given its mobility. But I also saw uh, something that was the size of a B-52 bomber, a cargo plane, which, which I think uh, was uh, was unquestionably a drone. So there's there is weird stuff going on there, uh, and who knows what sort of experimentation is going on in the thousands of vaults and, and corridors below the desert sands. I mean, who knows? Uh, I I think that the point of all these things is that the notion of a of a simple reality split between what's actually there and what's in the mind. Uh, becomes a very different proposition when you talk about cultural mythology. I, I'm, I, I agree that if you see a schizophrenic walking down the street mumbling, that what's going on in his or her mind may not be of significance enough to approach 
uh, from another point of view. It also might just be sealed off to us in as secure a way as Area 51 is. We just may not have access to it. But when, you know, millions of people, when, when culture, this is what we, we talk about with culture, capital C, anything that's going on on that level demands a certain level of not just respect, but awe and, and definite engagement. You know, there's no way around it. And we, we see this, this is one of the, the interesting things uh, that we'll get to in our first book club thing, because uh, one of Lawrence Weschler's comments about Robert Irwin's art was that it broke down that idea of, is art in, inherent in the object, the art creation, or is it inherent in, in the artist and the viewer's experience? And the point was, well, it's that interface, it's that moment of engagement Art is what happens to the viewer, which I think is a beautifully simple idea, uh, but it's immensely complicated. And so then the whole notion of wherein lies reality is, is beautifully captured in the UFO mythology. And a whole range of other, like, you know, as, as Robert Anton Wilson would say, is that a real unicorn you're thinking about? You know, I mean, I just, that cracks me up every time I, I think of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's yeah. we need a bit more fluid, flexible, robust, and also lyrical notion of reality and to be a little bit faster on our feet and a little bit less willing to brick that into place. You know, mm-hmm. no bricks, more tentacles is my thought. I, I do like that. I do like that. And I think that that what's interesting about that and what we've been getting at in this week in dissonance is that curiosity itself you mentioned that interface between the viewer and the object itself i think that that is the way through dissonance in general it speaks to the two examples that i gave before the ufo example because i i think i have it in my head that the way Uh, a modern person in 2022 approaches the COVID-19 pandemic really speaks to their ability to be a a kind of actor within these uh, uh, brainscapes, right? Your ability to engage with something that uh, is at times unknowable and at times contradictory and to be able to cobble together uh, a kind of disparate tapestry of what you think is true and untrue and maybe has some merit and maybe doesn't have some merit i i really i think that that is is the key to being a a kind of signal to noise discerner or a uh what's a better way of putting it a a dissonance a, a dissonance pirate or something right like you're you're able you're able to to function within this um, this noisy uh, media climate. If you can approach the UFO phenomenon and take in all of these things without constantly needing to explain them away as X, Y, or Z, you're living in a on a Fortrian plane that I think prepares you mentally and creatively for the image magic warfare 
that's constantly being beamed into our eyeballs every time we look at our phone. Well, I, I would jump in there immediately on that phrase, explain away. I think if anyone's intention is ever to explain away, as mm. then they have a very low threshold of coherence for their definition of explanation. And I would really hope that they would never be in a teaching situation or any kind of leadership situation, because I think they're... Their concept of uh, exposition and explanation is uh, is very deficient, if not retarded. Um, mm, but exactly, <clears throat> I have another sort of angle which I really want to uh, to get to, and I, I don't know. I, I think there is a harmonic here, um, but it certainly qualifies as a weak and dissonance, and it. Well, let's just see. Let me just run it out, and we'll see if it links back. If, if, as we say, everything connects, right? Um, mm -hmm. I've been uh, displaced from my home and exposed to network television. And I'm certainly not a virgin when it comes to network television. I'm not making that claim. But I have not had... Uh, well, I haven't been vaccinated Again, you know, and I, uh, I, I haven't got my network TV vaccination. It kind of overwhelmed me. I just, I, my, I just watch it in my mouth. I can feel my face stretching in disbelief, disbelief. <laughs> and I, I kept running into some phrases that uh, concerned me, uh, such as incontinence products delivered to your door. I kept seeing horrific eczema and psoriasis ads intermingled with Domino's pizza. Uh, I hit an ad for sweatpants that have that feature built-in underwear, which is a phrase that concerns me. And then I hit uh, a very cute. Uh, well, I wouldn't say she was quite age appropriate, but I I don't know. I not not completely out of the question but she was the representative figure and face for washable period pants washable mm. period mm. pants and okay so i was in my local supermarket uh which is an albertson's and there was a gal who is my age and was uh, amongst her purchases were some depends uh Mm -hmm. you know, protection underwear. And she was mm -hmm. very funny about saying that it wasn't for her. She was buying for a friend. People are very, mm -hmm. very friendly. I've had more conversations in the last three days with complete strangers than I've had in five years. And we got in, and between the two of us and the, uh, the cashier and a couple of other people, we got into a whole riff about all of these intimate body products and medical things that are being advertised. And just the total collective reaction was, ooh, too much information. What is going on? Well, coming home from that, I, I mean, I had a, such a good laugh, and there was nothing more of a tonic than having a genuine belly laugh with people you don't know in a completely warm, authentic moment. It just, it, 
it was mm-hmm. like a hot bath. You know, I just grooved on it. But I got home and I just flipped on and I, there happened to be on CNN, a network I think is uh, probably holds the lowest uh, performance level of credibility and and basic intelligence. I do like their 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 history series, the 60s, 70s, 80s. I think people would be familiar with them. I think those documentary series are done fairly well. Well, up comes David Brinkley. Now, David, I, do you know Huntley and Brinkley were major newscasters and of my, in my childhood junior high, they were kind of they weren't quite as iconic as Walter Cronkite, but they were pretty major and I often romanticize them and, and Walter Cronkite as part of a, a, an era of credibility and dignity in journalism that is a sad contrast to our, uh, our sensationalist, often moronic, uh, talking heads today. But I heard him say something that really uh, just was like a, a wrench in my gears because I strongly disagree mm-hmm. with it. Uh, he was speaking at the end of the uh, series on the 60s as a kind of media figurehead summing up the media power and uh, religious magic of, of the 60s. And he said that television showed the American people to the American people for the first time. And now I think a lot of people might agree with that or might understand what he was saying. I mean, he was a professional television figure. I think he could be forgiven a little bit of hypnosis of the power of television. Um, And that whole uh, CNN series ends up being a kind of catechism of, of the power of television. It isn't really about a decade or another decade and another decade or events and assassinations and wars. It's, it's about the power of television to craft, manipulate, and depict these things. But I thought to myself, coming off this, this wonderful exchange about ridiculous products for incontinence and terrible skin conditions and menstruation and all these things that really kind of shouldn't be talked about in public necessarily, with strangers, having a good laugh with people, and having been able to engage with people just walking around on the street, I thought, David Brinkley, you got it exactly wrong. The American people didn't need television to, as a mirror. That, that, is, a, that is an absolute falsehood, and this is where I think a great deal of the problems of the more recent modern age comes from, is that we look at television as if it is a mirror, and it's a terribly distorted one. It is a complete artificial world, and I think it's a great misrepresentation of people walking around in the street. And I think more in the last 10 years, this has become true with, you know, it, it just it astonishes me. I, I was watching, you know, some sitcoms, and the laugh tracks are still on. And I thought, what? This is not the 1960s anymore, and these horrific reality shows that the the purpose of them is to lower the bar 
and show the people doing the most demeaning things, the most sensationalist. It's like a really perverse Fortrian thing of how many people who are just completely insane can we show? And it, it, it's just a, the worst kind of carnival, the worst sideshow. It makes the 19th century look, I think, very civil and dignified. And I think anybody today who's talking about progressive values and a more uh, humane approach to things, yeah, that's happening in real life on the streets. It's not happening in our media world. It's not happening in the news media, and it's not happening in commercial entertainments where the entire focus is degradation of spirit, mind, community, and basic human decency. So I agree with everything that you just said. The question that comes to my mind listening to to that takedown of the of the news and of television in general, because it's not just the news, right? Right. It's ads. Right. Tele- no, absolutely. Television sitcoms and things like that. Could you give me uh, your your take on in its idealized form, what what television would look like. Let's say you had your own channel. Chris Sacknessum had his own his own channel where you controlled the programming. What would that what would that look like? And the reason why I ask this question is because I'm wondering if everything you described from the oversharing of of bodily issues, which I do I do think it it's interesting because I don't recall as a child I haven't watched television in a while uh, which isn't saying anything cool like it used to saying you don't own a TV doesn't matter anymore because I have a computer which is sort of its own monster that includes television absolutely but I don't I don't recall as a kid watching TV all the nights that I would stay up very, very late watching South Park or you know Conan O'Brien or any of these late night programs, I don't recall those kind of ads. I do recall, you know, I've fallen and I can't get up. I recall, uh, you know, different kinds of, of cleaners. Bob Vila, uh, or not Bob Vila? Who is the fella who died who had that super sponge? I can't remember now. But, you know, those kind of uh, in, in, infomercial guys. Right. Chuck Norris was always on TV for some reason, selling something or other. Plate, Hummel plates, maybe. Um, so I'm, I'm is this a, an issue, as, uh, as McLuhan would say, is it, is it just sort of native to this medium? Is it a problem with the medium? Or, or is there a type of idealized television... Uh, broadcasting schedule that could either you know mitigate these problems or perhaps uh, you know solve them altogether. Well, I think the the problem is always when you systematize or, or uh, you know make into a program format any kind of, of point of view or aesthetic. I think there there are some issues there, but some program formats and some systems seem to be both uh, more robust but also more genuinely uh, adaptive in an organic sort of way. Uh, I think that 
I can't look at any of the networks that I have been scanning around. And I think just the aspect of, um, you know how today it, it, we, we are constantly blurring the categories between the gadget, the physical you know, piece of technology equipment that's you know, made in China or whatever, and the information and or entertainments that flow through it and also the, the, the platforms that we use, the subscription channels. We, we, we muddle all of that into the notion of technology, communications, or entertainment. We kind of blur all those, you know? Uh, mm. So it, at any given point, I've got a relationship with a Samsung TV, uh, maybe uh, a Samsung remote, uh, hopefully it's the, but it might have been upgraded to something else. It doesn't have to be. There's DirecTV or Cox Communications supplying it. And then I have access to all these channels. And then there's the programming that lies behind those channels. And on and on we go. And, and yet it, we conveniently sort of lump that all together under the idea of, of television. And I think we need to really break that apart in a kind of solvent sort of sense, you know, really get some serious psychological chemistry dissolving some of these barriers and breaking them down and seeing, okay, what are we really looking at? What, what's really going on? Because when we start to do that, of course, we start to look at the market segments, the time of day. This is how advertisers look at things. So we, we're going to get more... Uh, incontinence products or diabetes ads or those sorts of things at certain times of day presumably to correspond with the the age of, of that you know viewing demographic uh, but there's another aspect of it which is absolutely amazing <laughs> my media analytics uh, thing which I've referred to came through would you care to guess the percentage increase in African-American females present in any way on television versus two years ago? 350%. 3,000%. Wow. If you look wow. at it totally across all ads, all shows, I, everything. Okay, this is interesting because I also had a gander at television at my mother-in-law's house and I was shocked by a commercial that I saw um, oh, see this is how this is how toothless these things are I can't even remember what it was an ad for but every commercial that came on you had one white guy one black woman and then somebody with some kind of disability whether they're on crutches or in a wheelchair or they have vitiligo it seemed very much like, <laughs> I don't know, just a kind of, uh, you know, these these ghouls, these soulless people just saying like, well, let's take one of each and put them together. And I think that anyone who sees programming like that, uh, can, it's easy to see through, right? And to see that it's a checklist that's being marked off and not anything that has anything to do with real uh diversity I, I mean i want to go I, I don't know i just i keep coming back to this um 
this idea that you know there are these incontinence products and there's this really uh, uh, lack of a lack of privacy with people's bodily functions that are being displayed. So my my grandmother used to have three channels because she refused to pay for cable. She would never get cable. So she had NBC, CBS, and ABC. And she would watch, religiously, she would watch Oprah, and she would watch Dr. Phil. And the commercials <laughs> that would come on during Oprah and Dr. Phil actually informed her purchases and the, and the things that she would buy. She didn't have anything else, right? She didn't read the newspaper. As far as I know, she didn't read the newspaper. She, she didn't have the internet. She'd gotten the internet a few years before she died, but she had no interest in what it had to offer. So she would get, she would have these glass cases uh, of, you know, uh, uh, commemorative plates were a big thing, spoons, a clock. She always had this clock with these 12 warblers on it with a different call for every hour. Oh, and I, nice. I suppose that was just something that was being sold at this moment. But it was a, it was a nice little uh, micro world that she lived in. She lived in a very small house. She didn't know a whole ton about what was going on in the world at large outside of these avatars of Oprah and Dr. Phil. But it was very, it was, it was sanitized in a way that I think, I mean, I don't, it was sanitized in a way that, you know, my grandmother wasn't being subjected to ads for, you know, uh, horrific skin conditions or, or what have you. And I, I, I just can't help but think that that was, not to romanticize or, or get too nostalgic about the past, because I'm trying my best to not do that anymore, because that's a very fraught way of looking at things. It is, it but is, it but did, it's it's fair enough sometimes. I think, but you see what I'm saying, oh, right? Oh, I do, you, you, you I see, do. Okay, okay. I absolutely right? do. Just this, just this idea that there was a, a kind of uh, just semblance of decorum uh, with what she was sort of watching, where it's not like, you know... Are you a fat piece of shit with vitiligo who who can't keep from crapping themselves for five minutes? Like, I wonder what that what that does psychologically to people. Well, the beautiful contrast in in our in our study of dissonance is, uh, and my psychologist friend has some very good answers to that because I I think you've you've already suggested what what you think the the, the effect is and it's it's not good. And then if you contrast that with all of these ads for, you know, completely basic, ordinary products that challenge us to discover our greatness, you know, David, have you discovered your greatness today? Well, you should be on this other 5G network, you know, it's like, I mean, and the contra the, the, the vicious dissonance between subjecting people to constant anxiety, fear-mongering, and the notion that, that you really are, you're obese, you've got some sort of skin condition that looks like another planet, the surface of another planet. You've got private- you're born without lungs. <laughs> or, oh, or oh I, I absolutely, that. thank you for reminding. I'm particularly fond of 
all of the the rapport and goodwill and cheer and picnic enjoyment in the interstitial lung disease ad. My God, you'd think the home team won the game, kid graduated number one, it's all good. Doesn't matter if you have interstitial lung disease because you can take this pill. And there's a fantastic one for some antidepressant where this woman, and, and God, she looks like such a lost, kind of pretty blonde, middle management woman. And no one likes to talk about just ordinary, mediocre women in you know, middle management jobs, but there are an awful lot of them. And she goes back to work because the pill is working for her. And she walks, she puts her emotional face paddle, you know, which had a glum face. She puts it in the pocket of her big power dressing (laughs) thing and walks around and embraces her female uh, colleagues of color. And she's, you know, it, it almost... Well, look, it isn't almost. It, it's simply hilarious. It's, it's vaudeville. It's burlesque. It's obscene theater mm-hmm. of delusion. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so the effects of this, I think, are, are, are tremendously traumatic. But, but it's the balance of all of these problems... And Jesus, if you don't have a skin disease, you, I mean, wouldn't you feel left out? I start itching just watching these things. I go, well, yeah, I don't know if that freckle, maybe I should get that checked. You know, I mean, how can you not respond to that? Oh, you know, crepey yeah. skin, you know, it's like, oh, dear. You know, I, I can't go out with that woman. She's got, God, she's got a little bit of a wrinkle on her arms. I don't know. Those hands, those hands look five decades old, you know, oh. You know, what happened there? Mm-hmm. You know, and you start to get these obscenely ridiculous uh, frameworks. But then you're told to discover your greatness, you know, and all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just, and there's a really great one for uh, Little Caesar's Pizza. Pizza, pizza. Mm-hmm. God, that, that little mm-hmm. cartoon here. Annoyed. There is this nerdy sort of chubby guy who gets a Batman, so this is a themed, a sponsor theme, we're blurring the worlds. We're not only selling Little Caesar's pizza, we're selling Batman, and there's a Batman calzone, you know, so it's shaped like the bat signal, which, you know, I don't want to eat anything that looks like that. I mean, it's it's just disgusting. But while this, this chubby guy is imagining, he's sitting down on the couch, doesn't look like he's ever gotten off the couch and he imagines in his mind that he's Batman and he's facing off against these really badly cast street thugs and he does a really stupid little uh, hippopotamus pirouette karate kick and it's it's so undignified as to be tragic you know yeah, it's vile I mean it's, yeah yeah I, I, I think about that. I think about that, and I, I contrast it with one of my favorite TV shows to ever air, which was Beavis and Butthead. Right, right. And <laughs> I think that Mike Mike Judge was really onto something. This whole this whole generation of of animation, whether it was Ren and Stimpy or Beavis and Butthead, that was very ugly and very concerned with the bot the gross bodily functions. 
So you have these two morons who are walking around who can only think about sex and heavy metal music, and they're walking through this world of other idiots, uh, whether it's their you know hippie music teacher or their stupid principal or you know pretty much anybody who they come across is some version of just a, a severely mentally retarded person, right? And that show was wasn't about uh, my interpretation of it is that that show was never about laughing at other people it was about getting you closer to this kind of ugly animalic uh, body that you live in and learning to to find a kind of simple sweetness in these heavy metal idiots who just wanted to have sex but never did that's a nice phrase that's a nice way to sort of think of it i i think that's well said it's uh there there was something about that that era of shows i I, I, uh, I've been wanting to ask you about one thing that uh, I picked up on was uh, it was MTV again. And I have some fond memories of where MTV started and, and how it, it's, you know, some of these spinoff, you know, segments that appeared. Have you seen the, the ridiculousness uh, segment you mean the show that they just play over and over and over and over and over and over again anytime i'm in a hotel room and i flip by mtv that show is on yeah so, yeah and there's a yeah. guy who's i think i think he's actually in his 50s he's certainly in his 40s but he's dressed he always wears a baseball cap and he's got skater wear i think he was a skater at some point yeah it's rob rob Durdeck, yeah okay he, he was a he was a skateboarder yeah okay uh and but it's kind of a jackass based thing of people doing stunts and uh and then he has two people on, the, on as guests on the panel. God only knows what they do. There's always sort of a black hip-hop dude and a, some gal who laughs a lot. And you wonder, oh, what, what's she, you know? What, what does she do for a living, really? Um, but I watch that and I just think, God, that is so pathetic. I mean, it's... Com- like it, the one I watched was the old standby of, of you know people uh, setting their farts on fire, and of course the calamity. That is that, funny though. Well, that is funny. It, it yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I I don't know if somebody should have a show that they're the host of and be collecting right. a paycheck for showing us those videos. I I'm not sure I need that. Mm-hmm. Why can't we just have a mm-hmm. you know. Uh, a flaming fart channel on YouTube and have just free access. We don't need a host. I mean, really, do we need right. a host I, I, for that? I like the, I like the 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 difference between a show like Ridiculousness and a show that I have a lot of time for, which was Jackass. Right. Right. Because Jackass was a show with these guys who actually put their own bodies on the line to do the dumbest things you could possibly imagine. And sometimes those stunts were so funny they would make you cry laughing. But it was an actual investment, an actual skin in the game of what seemed to be a group of largely sweet-natured idiots, uh, you know, doing things like having a charging bull uh, gore them, <laughs> somehow surviving all this, or, you know, putting a race car up their butt. But the America's Funniest Home Videos style of clip show where, you know, it's it's people who are sitting in the comfort of a studio audience and saying things like, damn, that had to hurt. There's like, where is where's your skin in the game, man? Like, what are you doing? You're just you're just reacting. This whole show is a, is just telling people it's it's a it's a show designed to be a laugh track for things, you know, um, 
I don't know how we got off on this tangent, but I like it. It's <laughs> well, I, I can I can bring it back around. I, I think what we can say is that if the the both the thrust of these shows and and television in a very very broad sense, from you know shows like Ridiculousness to uh, the news, <laughs> uh, if we can say that that where these are all going, and also the mechanics the dynamics that make them work are all about uh, playing to the lowest common denominator and lowering people's sense of dignity and uh, really the, just the most puerile uh, emotions and interests. And we can say, okay, look, that, that's fine. I mean, that's been with us for a long time. That's what things like the carnival, the burlesque, strip shows, prize fights, beauty pageants, the ugliest baby or the ugliest dog competition. You know, the, this is not, not anything new. We've just found more channels for it. But I think then the question flips around and says, okay, if, if the goal is to show us the worst, the stupidest, or, or let's just say the most immature, that's a neutral sort of term, I think, the most immature aspects of humanity and certainly culture and society, in a sense. Well, what's, where do we find the flip side of that? Where do we find the flip side of that? Because though these things should, if, if, our, if what we say is everything turns into its opposite, these should be leading us to some other sort of level. And I don't know if we have to go to grace and dignity and really grand, noble things, but maybe the kind of simple humanity that I've been seeing on the streets and, you know, laughing with people in the Albertsons about incontinence products and just an overwhelming sense of, of common sense is what my experience has been over the last month mm. of meeting people. And I don't see that reflected in any aspect of, of television, whether it be scripted network dramas and comedies, the news, endless reality TV shows, which are anything but reality. Uh, I, I don't, I don't see any of that. I, I think that we're, we've yeah. got two conflicting worlds, uh, a looking glass world that is getting more and more ravenous and demented and sucking more and more people into it via the internet and endless, uh, you know, social media platforms. And then we have, you know, life on the street where, you know, actually carpet you know, gets ripped up, babies' butts get wiped, uh, people land planes, you know, physical, real-world stuff, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so basically I'm hearing a return to, well, let me put it this way. The short answer is that there, there doesn't seem to be a, a prescription necessarily for what television could do for this because it is a tenacious onslaught of the worst things that happen in the world, the dumbest things that happen in the world, uh, given to people in order to make them feel uh, afraid and essentially insecure is the wrong word, but sort of just disgusted with their own bodies. And, and but not not pleased about the ways in which their bodies are disgusting generally revulsed and repulsed by the the skin that they have to live in so I do like this idea of you know going out onto the street and maybe I don't know playing a game of pickup basketball with people who you maybe don't know or 
talking to people in the grocery store. It's 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 a move away from the 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 television set and the internet screen in general and a call to go out and and just engage that's the point that is exactly the point and i wanted so when you asked me what what my idea of ideal tv programming would be that was beautifully rhetorically slanted to give you an answer in terms of tv and the answer that has come forth is is in what my, my view is is TV is not the answer, and I mean TV in that broad internet sense, that we need to get away from the screens, we need to get in person, face to face, join bowling leagues, join the Elks Club if we need to, you know, do bake sales, start dancing with each other again, break down this endless, anonymous, completely compartmentalized and uh, monetized online behavior because anything that promotes more of that is promoting loneliness, dissociation, alienation, depression, and ultimately uh, a collapse at the at the fundamental core level of society. Hmm. All right. Where would you like to go from from here? Well, um, I, I want to allude to uh, the tool for the week. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a bigger sort of approach. We, we've started in the last couple of episodes to move from linguistic, conceptual, uh, tool-based ideas. And what we mean by tools are magical, intellectual, but very practical devices, mechanisms, and techniques of coping with exactly the kinds of problems we've just been talking about. Modern alienation, the onslaught of uh, built-in underwear and incontinence products delivered to your door and keeping up with the Joneses endlessly because you've got the app and building your own burger and getting that pizza shaped like some sort of awful scab that came off of someone's back and why is Shaq O'Neal advertising yet another brand of product that he has no connection with at all? Um, how do you cope with that noise? That's what we mean by the tools. The shift has been over the last couple of weeks towards a mathematics-based idea, and this is a big, big thematic shift, so it's going to take some time to roll out some ideas. But I want to plant two seeds and get people thinking about them for next week and to maybe even do a little bit of, of research. Uh, Dave and I have, have tried to present sort of some pretty fun real-time connection, uh, but every once in a while some homework's needed, you know, and not just further reading suggestions. David does a great job listing those, but to really bring some, just a little bit of, of study and inquiry to the next episode. I want you to think of two things. We talk about, well, prove it, you know? How often do we hear that today? Prove it. And we forget where the concept of proof comes from. I want people to have a look at, I've referred to Euclid's Elements, which I think is just one of the most beautiful things ever created by a human being. And look at what a mathematical proof actually means, because that's where that concept comes from, you know. And that is part of where magic, the magic of mathematics comes from. And there is a long history of a magical focus on mathematics 
beginning with Pythagoras, but I mean the whole tradition of the Egyptians, the Jews, the Northern Africans, on and on and on in China and India. Math and magic have a deep, deep connection for a reason, for a reason. So I want you to think about the, how proof relates from Euclid's very specific examples of that. And there are, there are others, many others throughout the history of math, but they're just beautifully and straightforwardly put. And they are examples of a tremendous human drive to establish a basis of understanding and some kind of certainty that we can share. Sharing certainty. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to have any kind of civilization at all. The mm -hmm. other idea I want to put forward is something that is, I think, the most complex, mysterious, problematic idea that I can possibly imagine. Hmm. And you can, it's depicted visually by two simple straight lines parallel to each other. I mean the equal sign, I mean the concept of equal equivalence. What a mind-blowing idea that is, and we are struggling with that second to second in our culture, cultures around the world. What does equality, equivalence, those words are very, very muddled. That idea is very muddled, you know? Something equals something else. I mean, really, if, if, if you don't think that's a magical, mysterious, and possibly, possibly psychopathic idea, I don't, I don't know <laughs> what, your, what criteria would be in, in play. You know, it's just absolutely uh, such a heavy idea. And yet we, we run through this, we run up against it, well, it's equal but different. It's the you know, and on and on and on. I want people to bring to our next segment, and I, I would uh, I, I want to focus a bit more on this next time, Dave, because I think we need to get into the, the meat of this, the concept of proof, and an example mm. from Euclid, but examples of where that equals idea, the equals sign, equations. Think about just how different that, that word, that concept, that field of meaning is, is just like this amazingly mobile swamp, you know, that's just, it, you can't pin it down. It's, it's, it's protoplasmic and weird, you know. It's very, very difficult to get a handle on. And yet we often just take it for granted, you know. I'm for equality. Oh, really? Uh, you know, let X equal Y. What is that? You know, really? Well, yeah. Wait a minute. Uh, one and one equals two. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. How do you know that? Uh, you know, right. on and right. on and on. There are this, just these levels and levels and levels of assumptions that go mm -hmm. unexamined by all of us, smart, educated people, as well as, you know, just people on the couch. Uh, we need to, to really get our hands on that because that... That simple symbol, just draw an equal sign and just, I mean, how much simpler could anything be? It's even simpler than a circle, I'd say. Easier to draw, mm. you know? Mm. But a mm. world of meaning and all of human history, 
hides behind those two lines. So that's my uh, kind of my pitch for uh, next session's tool explanation, tool inquiry. Uh, we're going to look at the idea of proof, and we're going to look at the idea of equivalence equals signs. Excellent. Awesome. And now we're ready for our travel log and a little bit of. Um, I will follow this up with a little bit of a debrief of why this exercise matters. But as always, uh, I'm just <clears throat> I'm I'm never not surprised by what you come up with. So lay it on us. Take us with you. Well, this was difficult for me because there were so many for me to choose from. I've been to several interesting markets in, in Seoul. I've been to one in London. Uh, the one that is the clearest to me and the one that I have written about in the past was a swap meet in North Hollywood. I believe it was in North Hollywood. Um, and a swap meet, for those of you who don't know, is essentially a very large flea market that usually takes place either in a kind of abandoned stadium or uh, something that used to be a grocery store. But there are all of these stalls that sell different things from, I don't know, cowboy boots to clothes to corsets to what have you. And there's usually food involved. I remember in this particular swap meet picking up a pupusa at a kind of uh, a vendor that was, you know, kind of crammed in between just rows and rows of mannequin butts in jeans, right? Chopped off at the torso. There was one very interesting stall towards the back that had uh, skulls with dragons on them encased in glass, which is something that you would very typically see at, let's say, a Comic-Con convention or what have you, but not usually in a primarily Latino, uh, uh, you know, sort of, pro not proprietorship, uh, patronage, right? And I remember going to this stall and one large glass case had uh, bongs. I recall one of them was uh, Bart Simpson themed bong. Another <laughs> one was yet another dragon. Uh, so you had the bongs, and then you moved to a cabinet that was stuffed with uh, yellow jackets, kratom, tarot cards, pyramids uh, with different levels of sand in them, I believe for some sort of energetic uh, stabilization techniques, evil eye charms, hand of Fatima's, um, a lot of magical type uh, iconography, right? Behind the 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 woman who was selling all of this stuff who was not your uh kind of gypsy looking uh witchy type woman but who i remember is wearing very plain a very plain pink t-shirt and jeans uh were several different statues there was the madonna uh of sorrows uh the the dolorosa who has a bunch of different sort of swords poking into her body um and then to the right there was an assortment of novelty butterfly knives and and hunting knives that had everything from the American flag to a grizzly bear uh, on them. So I thought that it was this very, uh, it's always stuck with me because of how dissonant the, the merchandise was. There was uh, drug paraphernalia, magical, um, magical paraphernalia, and then uh, things with which to stab people. So that's my alcove. 
Okay, well, that was lovely on so many levels. I, I'm afraid that you, in this instance particularly, not that you don't most of the time, but I think to, uh, to most people who are, are uh, reading, thinking people, you, you give yourself away as a writer uh, pretty clearly for just the enjoyment of, of the words and the, the sheer music of the language and the, and the description. You know, it's, uh, I think from the very start, a swap meet in North Hollywood is a, is a lovely idea. I want to focus on that idea of a swap meet. I thought that was interesting that very frequently the, the first words you say in response to these challenges are, are very revealing of uh, a, a, a personal philosophy and an angle of attack uh, in the specific challenge, but a larger sort of, of personal worldview. Because a swap meet is, is a very dynamic process. Uh, and this, this is the theme, really, the underlying purpose of these exercises, that what I, I try to get people to do with this is to break with the idea of uh, the memory palace, which was given to us by Giordano Bruno, which is a very handy idea. It gets somewhat caricatured in a lot of television shows and movies. The idea is you create an imaginary conceptual structure building, and within it you place memories, you know, as artifacts, and then you take yourself on an imaginary uh, tour through them to try to find. It's the idea of spatializing and physicalizing memory, which is certainly handy, there's no question about that. But it becomes then sort of rummaging around an attic, trying to find something, or trying to find your keys. You know, it becomes on that level, and as everyone knows, one of the best ways to never find your keys is to be just looking frantically, to be late for an appointment, and to smash your head into the wall in tears of anger and frustration, um, and then to go on, you know, uh, a rampage uh, killing event. You know, that's that's yeah. not a good way to find your keys, is it? Um, no. The way to, to do that is, is to really embrace dynamic process. Uh, we are not only the company we keep, but we are the categories that we describe, define, that we locate and perceive. And I think it's very interesting to, if we played back a recording of, of David's description, it's very interesting to see the categories that he worked through and that we got a kind of, of genuine travelogue in a very entertaining sense with some very colorful language and, and vivid imagery and also vivid sound. But the end, at the end, he gave us, as natural communicators and teachers do, a kind of summary, a kind of prism to look through this. These are the categories, knives, bongs. We, we got an overview collapse condensation of, of what was going on. That is a very, very old approach to knowledge, which is has survived because it's immensely effective. Get attention, a swap meet in North Hollywood, move through entertainment and engagement with interesting detail, colors, shapes, smells, da, da, da. have a roundup summary of, of, of how those things matter, how, how, they become, how they form a coherence, how they form a coherence. But our memory will improve and our engagement with the world will improve when we have more exposure, experience, and intimacy with our own perceptual patterns 
I think everyone is now long familiar with the idea of learning styles. Some of us are visual learners, some of us are more oral, auditory, some of us are more kinesthetic. You know, you have someone who can watch dance moves once and they've got it. You know, not just because they're a coordinator or even a professional dancer. It's, that's how they learn. They need to see something actually happening. Some people need to have a good written description. Well, we all have memory systems that work in our, in our own peculiar ways, and they are directly linked to our perceptions. You can't separate the two. It's impossible to remember what one has never perceived in some way. Mm -hmm. So we need mm -hmm. to break down those barriers. Memory is the all-embracing rubric, and the senses fall beneath it. And thinking and memory are synonymous. There's no point in having a huge distinction between them because you'll spend your life trying to draw that distinction clearly, and it, it can't be done. It can't be done. But here's what I want to leave people with, because uh, we're going to be doing more uh, memory exercises. It's become kind of my major focus, and I'm going to uh, develop this into a sequel book. Um, coming off the, the textbook coming out on March 31st, I'm going to propose the idea that the key to strengthening memory, both in terms of capability, but also in terms of enjoyment, satisfaction, in you know, really engaging with it so it fulfills us more fully, not just that it's more of a machine capable to, you know, of better use. We want to have more fun with it. The key to this is dissolving old ideas and definitions of what memory is and thinking in terms of dynamic process. The items on a shelf in an antique store can be described in terms of size, shape, color, purpose and function, maybe history, when they were made, who made them. Uh, what was the personal history of the vendor collector, on and on and on. We can overlay everything with a series of categories. Well, we can do that to the entire world. We can do that to ourselves. If we stop and think, not artifact, not object, not individual, not person, body, but dynamic process, incredibly complex interrelationship of decisions, consequences, action, fluidity, past, future. Instead of getting overwhelmed by that idea, I submit that that is the way for calm and coherence. It is much, you don't lose track of a beautiful, rich, flowing wave of strangeness throughout time you lose track of keys and the dumb lyric to a song and maybe you forget something that you don't want to do because you don't want to do it. But you strengthen memory by allowing complexity. The more complexity you see, the more dynamism that you see involved in what's around you the stronger your memory will be and you won't even find you won't even need to be remembering it think about that that word remember you know 
Think about what member, you know, think of the different ways that word works. Well, he's got a really big member, you know, or are you a member of that club? You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. the entire mystery and strangeness of the world hides inside the simplest, most innocent seeming words. And if we break through that barrier and go, okay, we're going to discard the trivial, the apparent, the easy, and the supposedly obvious, as if anything is obvious, and we're going to just absolutely embrace the big waves, the big, dynamic, strange, unfolding, puzzle nature of things. Well, suddenly we're in the groove with it. We're harmonizing with it, and we don't have to work so hard trying to pick up little objects and to, you know, shove them back in our mental attics, you know? What a, what a futile waste of time that is, you know? Uh, so I like that. I do like that because it seems, yeah, instead of this big memory palace in which you, know, you have objects that contain all of these memories that you can just pull, um, pull out and remember, which is a useful strategy. I'm definitely not uh, denying that. I think that Bruno was really onto something with the idea of the memory palace, but it's in... It, it it seems to be more like conjuring a spell in in the sense that you are able to uh, instead of remembering it's re reliving through through code or through uh, through performance right you're you're performing a memory rather than remembering it well right and I think that, that the the memory palace is deeply related to other uh, to the cabinet of curiosities or Wunderkammer mm-hmm. idea to the museum to the zoo to the library to many of these great educational inventions of, of the historic past and in a sense language itself is a memory palace the ultimate memory mm-hmm. magic system all of these things are good but they all work on the basis of engagement. Otherwise, if a library isn't involved, I mean, what is sadder than when you, when you pick up a library book that hasn't been checked out for 10 years, you know? Mm-hmm. It, they become graveyards instead of active gardens of interactive engagement without mm-hmm. our engagement. We, we bring them to life. Your own individual perception brings them to life. And the suggestion that I'm making is that rather than think of, of memory as some sort of <laughs> tragic recall, think of it as a much more present engagement. Yeah. You know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I think that that is a, uh, I really like that. I'm going to have to think about that for a while, but I do, I do like this breaking down of this idea of pulling from the past this goes into ideas that we've talked about on the show before about where do where does a plant store its memory if it doesn't have uh, a brain to store them in right where does where do memories actually live are they stored in your head like some sort of computer i don't i don't think so there's a breakdown of this like you know you're not reaching into the past because where is the past what what are you reaching into when you're grabbing these things right the present aspect of of memory performance i think is is a really unique way of looking at this uh of this issue and this is connected with some of of the really most important ideas of of our uh intellectual philosophical heroes of of bergson and 
uh, Rupert Sheldrake. Uh, it, it's part of the spiritual traditions uh, of, of, you know, at least two of the major religions, and it's it's certainly part of of. I think it's it's a core principle when we look at the animist magic belief systems of so-called mm-hmm. indigenous mm-hmm. people, and so it's an idea that has eternal life because mm-hmm. that's the whole. It's the dream time constantly being here. That's the core idea. And when we think of it that way, I, we start to break with this hopelessly fragmented materialist uh, linearity, and uh, that's just doom. We, we, we need a dimensional, constant, organic, uh, monstrous, dream monster sense of time, you know? Absolutely. Do we have a tip this week, or was that... I mean, that was a pretty no, good we, tip we, in and of itself. Well, I do have a little bit of a... Uh, yeah, I do. And I, I think it's um, it, it's something that's been on my mind. It harkens back to a topic that uh, we, we, de- we dedicated a couple of episodes to quite a while ago. And interestingly enough, I've, I've heard from, from people... Um, these were our uh, free-to-air uh, episodes that went at the start of the series... When Dave and I were talking about empathy, and we were really prosecuting that idea, um, because I think it is a very, very superficial and overused term today, and we we had a kind of a takedown of that, and and I heard I've heard back from five or six people now that that really um, that really resonated with them. They didn't always agree with what we said, uh, and you and I both were sort of. Uh, I think a little bit aggressive on certain fronts that cert- that people didn't get with, but they certainly got with the idea of what we were talking about, that empathy is not just something we can just accept as being good for its own sake without performance and without also some analysis. But my, my tip for this week is, is uh, related to this idea that it's very common, it's, uh, you know, to the point of being just natural and excusable that when someone says something to us or describes an experience that they're having, whether it be an exotic experience or something, you know, a problem that they're dealing with, our first reaction, all of us, I think, is to pop up with something from our experience, our life, our background, right? I think it's just, it's almost a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, uh, for example, and, and you know, my mom is a fan of our show, so she'll hear this. I mentioned that I was interested in, in actually joining the Elks Club in the town where I moved to, Boulder City. Now, I may not actually do that, but what I was trying to suggest is that there, there well, A, there really is an Elks Club. It seems like a viable community thing to do. And it was an expression of my feeling of being at home here, that I might be able to... You know, because I, the idea of me being joining the Elks Club uh, a few years ago, let alone 25, it was just ridiculous. No, you know, absolutely not. So I was making a kind of metaphorical, magical point about how comfortable I feel in the town. Well, her first response to this, and Mom, I understand if you're listening or, you know, when you hear this, uh, was to talk about the Kiwanis Club because my stepfather was involved in Kiwanis and... It's a relevant sort of thing. Kiwanis is like the Elks, and of course. 
But there isn't a Kiwanis Club here as far as I know, and that wasn't really what I was talking about. And I think that what we do is, and we do this so simply and without question, we always put our two cents in. And I think we do that to show that we're listening. We, we think we're projecting empathy and connection, but we're often mishearing what someone's saying and we're superseding their experience with our own, you know? It, sometimes we should just shut up and listen or go, well, that's, that's really, you know, we don't have to just simply overwhelm someone else's, uh, you know, experience. And you, I wonder if you've been, you know, finding this with, with Gus, that someone will start, I mean, it's okay for the grandmothers to give you advice. You, you bought into that without, no one's going to give you any sympathy or empathy about that. But when other people start going up, you know, with their experience, sometimes it's cool. Sometimes it resonates just right and it's appropriate. But I would suggest a lot of the time what we are doing is in a kind of ego way, in a kind of insecure way, in some sort of, of just knee-jerk way. We're really trying to eclipse the other person and their experience and mm -hmm. trying to kind of... The, I wonder, I've got, uh, my psychologist friend is getting back to me on this because he, he thought this was a really interesting point. And his wife does a lot with this in her workshops of whether or not there is a kind of uh, power thing going on there that could be classed in the, in the uh, passive-aggressive uh, frame. Um, he's thinking about that but I, I i put that to our listeners and i put that to you that i think there is something in that that there is what we're talking about is is how we respond to people in a way that is respectful engaged shows that we're listening and at the same time doesn't just completely try to take the ball away from uh you know the other person you know, that that's and I notice how easy that is to do. You know, sometimes we just need to listen. And one of the things that makes me feel good about this move of mine is that I am a, a natural anthropologist. I, I just that's that's one thing I do do really well. And I can listen to people. I mean, you people can hear me just go on and on. You know, I can I can talk. I can I got a lot to say. But it is possible for me to just sometimes really listen and to also check out paralinguistic, you know, things, not just body language, but, you know, stuff that's nonverbal. And so my tip is to really try to focus on that. You know, think about some key, you know, relationships, whether your spouse or partner or your friend or business partner or some, some of those key relationships. Change the ratio of what you're saying in response to what they're saying. Give them more airtime. Just try it. Just try it. I like that. A way to frame it might be to... It's funny because anytime we talk about empathy and relationality... Uh, there's a a type of interpretation for for things that you and more often me can say that might make us sound like psychopaths but it almost <laughs> seems it almost seems like a good a good exercise maybe not a great way of living but a good exercise 
would would be to stop attempting to uh, relate what people are saying to things that you've experienced in your past. So let's say, for example, your friend comes to you and says, you know, my grandma just passed away. Well, my grandma passed away as well. But what if for the duration of that conversation, I pretend as though she didn't? In doing so, wouldn't I then be able to more directly engage with my friend's current loss and the freshness and uniqueness of that experience for him than through the lens of my own personal loss? I think that that might be of value. That is a beautiful example of your natural teaching ability because you picked it up exactly on what I was hoping to convey and you've used a very concrete, highly emotional example, but one that comes up in in, in life all the time. And I think that is a tremendous way to to clarify the point and to to give people a, a very, very practical everyday example of how that would work. You know, it it's it's well done. I mean, I think that's exactly the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Because it would be so easy for you to talk about your grandmother. You know? It just mm-hmm. it, it right. it's so natural. No one's gonna go, well, David, you're you know, that's not being very you're re- you're trying to relate. But I hope that people listening to this will not just hear uh, the interpersonal dynamics aspect of this, which is very real and very much what the frame I'm talking about, but connect that to that magical equals sign that we were talking about earlier, about relatability versus equating, equating. Think about that and think about the equator. You know, anything to do with that prefix of equa, you know, as an equal, trying to think about that because there is a weird thing of like, well, my grandmother equals your, you know, there's a kind of a weird equation there that is driving that logic of response and relatability that is kind of very strange. I mean, uh, I'd actually... I think that's kind of psychopathic rather than a lack of empathy. Oftentimes, I do too. you know what yeah, I mean? I think I that's too. that's very, very odd when you, I mean, and that was such, I loved how you did that. And I mean, really imagine that conversation happening where a friend, you know, mentions, a, a, you know, a, the death of a grandmother and your first response is about your grandmother. I mean, that can so easily happen. It happens minute to minute around the world, everywhere. And it's completely bizarre. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, totally agree. I think that that's a great practical tip. And I think that it's it's definitely worth trying out. It, because I feel as though a person who you're speaking to about an event such as the death of a grandmother or trouble, you know, bring it more personal, you know, troubles with um, a a new baby, for example, right? Oh, he just, he won't sleep. Well, my kid did this. I mean, that's fantastic, but that's your kid. These are different people that we're talking about. And I think that I'm very good at this in conversation. I will explicitly ask for advice if I want it. Right. Um, Yes. And I think I think I'm not alone in that. I think most people will do that. People will say things to the effect of, "What did you do in this scenario? 
can you give me some advice? Uh, if they don't, they want to be heard and and understood. And I really like the idea of, of just shutting up <laughs> and, and, and really listening, not trying to fit it into your own, you know, personal paradigms, but experiencing uh, a loss or a problem or of or something fun with someone else who is not you right and that's a beautiful uh way to uh lead into our uh next episode and a tip then i've you've you've given me a a, a beautiful idea I, I, i'm gonna move this forward because what you and i can do is a bit of role playing about uh when a question and, and advice is sought when a question is asked and advice is sought what how to deal with that uh, so that's a nice follow-up um, cool I'm, I'm glad that I mean you, you really put that into very practical uh, you know a frame that that everyone can understand it, it just it is difficult to do it's something we have to think about doing but it's a great yeah. habit to break mm-hmm I agree well it's a great practical tip so I'm really happy with that segment. Do you want to take us out on a dream? Okay, okay. So there are all these different people that I've been, I feel like I've really been out in the world since I sold the condo and I've had to move a few times but the Airbnb didn't work. I've been in a couple of different hotel motel situations. I've just met an awful lot more people across every walk of life that you can imagine from serious uh, drug criminals and felons who had moved into my place to, you know, f- people in transit, uh, just very, you know, ordinary people, professionals, artists, just this thick of things. And the really strong sense of, of diversity. And so I, in the dream, I was uh, sitting watching and isn't people watching so much more enjoyable now with masks off or most masks, you know, people just relaxing and the weather here is beautiful and it just yeah. feels, you know, like uh, sort of back to normal. Well, there was a guy who did have a kind of clown-like uh, appearance, a very bulbous uh, forehead, maybe early 30s, very, very red, scraggly sort of bozo hair and bright sort of uh, hot pink uh, crocodile uh, rubber or plastic shoes, pants falling down, plastic bags, clearly on the schizophrenic spectrum. And yet, as he was moving and I was trying to, he was talking to himself. I felt myself, it was, it was kind of a late afternoon in the dream, and out of, uh, there had been just beautiful blue skies, and it's so stark here. God, if you want us to know what black looks like, a crow against the blue sky here is, is the definition of black. But the sky was kind of milky, cloudy, gunmetally, sort of mysterious, and the sky looked all the more curious walking past me in the dream and I was trying to hear what he was saying because I had a peculiar intuitive feeling that it was it was a language a different language it didn't seem like 
jargon or nonsense. I mean, yeah, he was just talking. He wasn't on a phone. He was definitely talking to himself or to, you know, some creatures or beings or that I couldn't see. But mm-hmm. it, had a, it had an order to it that I really felt was kind of beautiful. It, it, it made me think of like player piano music made entirely of organic substance. Mechanical, but entirely vegetable, if that makes any sense at all. And the, mm-hmm. other, does, th- yeah. the other thing that was so weird <laughs> is that he was walking directly past me. I'm sitting on sort of this ledge on the side of, not a bench, but I'm, I'm comfortable sitting on the ledge. As I'm listening to him, I, I realize he's not passing. He, does, he's, he remains in my field of view, but it's not like a film playing over and over and over again, you know, going left to right, left to right, back again. He's taking me, I'm moving with him down the street. Mm-hmm. And the more mm-hmm. I listen, the more perfect that, that segment is. And we get to the end of the street, which has changed entirely from what it was when I was just first sitting in the ledge and watching him approach me. And he turns and disappears into this enormous shadow of, of an oak tree. Not a huge oak tree itself, but just perfectly rich. The kind of thing, a kind of tree that they they give you to draw uh, when you're trying to learn the idea of negative space, you know, mm-hmm. and it, mm-hmm. it's yeah. and some people just have that ability to see that, and it, it it might be the first time that you ever really get with the notion of negative space, and that you can do any of that with your hand, you know, you think, my God, what a huge idea that is. And then he was gone, and I'm, I just was looking dumbfounded, and this woman appears, kind of an archetypal uh, hippie, sort of white, sort of Latina, looked great in blue jeans, crystals, Native American turquoise, just kind of a you know, a, a folksy sort of Western American gal. And then she turned into like this sort of temple priestess in a very sheer scrim sort of robe. And she said, I know the question that you have in mind. And I said, really? Because I had a whole bunch of questions, I Mm -hmm. thought. She said, you're wondering about his language. And I said, well, yes, that that, that was... She said, he was speaking Phoenician. Mm. And then I woke up. And I I do, I admit, I don't know, I'm fascinated by the whole Phoenician culture. They they are, you know, they're so linked to the the proto-science magical traditions that you and I both are interested in the nautical exploration traditions, Atlanta. I mean, I, I just, every, anything to do with, <laughs> and, you know, it's just... The Pythagorean mystery. Oh, yeah. I just lay that stuff on me because I can't get enough of it, you know? So that was the dream. Excellent. Well, I think that that's a perfect place to wrap up. 
I, I really enjoyed that. Um, we'll be back next week, folks. So thank you for listening. Thanks very much. Take care, everyone.